Welcome to the Close Set Podcast. My name is Themistocles Alexis. Today, we will be looking at the life and work of Tony Richardson, and specifically, a selection of a handful of films he made during the late 50s and early 60s that helped define what is now known as the British New Wave. Good to see you. So we're back today for a look at the life of Tony Richardson. Uh, Before we get to all that, though, first of all, if you are listening for the first time, welcome, welcome. And before we get rolling, I would just like to say, uh, and I probably should have done this sooner, I have been keeping track of the numbers. I always do. And the show's audience is small, yes, because let's face it, who the fuck am I? But, uh, (laughs) But it's a diverse audience, and it's growing slowly but surely, and... Since I started this in the summer, one of my favorite things about doing this show is every time the numbers go up, I immediately want to find out where the listeners are from. And I am proud to report that the show has listeners from well over two dozen countries, uh, not just Canada where I'm from. We've got a lot of listeners from the United States, listeners from South America, Argentina, Brazil, Australia, Israel, Greece, my motherland, the UK, Russia, India, you name it. And uh, I just wanted to take a minute to say that I am very appreciative of you guys taking the time to listen to my babble. (laughs) And uh, it really is a wonderful thing seeing listeners from all over the world tune in to hear about, about bygone eras of cinema, really. Because like I say all the time, I think a lot of these works uh, still deserve to be celebrated. Some of them hold up better than others. Most of them do, I'd say. But I think the, uh, these works of art should be kept alive. And uh, it's always wonderful to see people from all over sort of, uh, sharing the same sentiment, if you will. So thank you very much, and uh, like I said, I should have taken a minute to say this sooner, but in any case, uh, speaking of which, if you are new to the show, you can find us on the Spotify, the Apple Podcasts, the Google Podcasts, and the Podbean. And also, you can follow us on the Instagram for updates as to what's happening with the show, what's coming up next, and so on. Closed Set Podcast is the handle, that is Closed Set Podcast, and as per usual, questions, comments, feedback... Criticism and the like are always welcome. You can reach us by email at closedsetpod at gmail.com. That is closedsetpod at gmail.com. And with the housekeeping and all that good stuff out of the way, let us boogie. Now, Tony Richardson, a uh, celebrated and respected British director, he directed well over 20 films and did a ton of work in the theater, worked for the BBC in his youth, and did a bit of screenwriting as well. Uh, his best-known works, or perhaps his uh, his most beloved, I should say, and these were part of uh, what is now known as the British New Wave, or the era of kitchen sink realism uh, that came out of the UK. And these were films that uh, kind of revitalized British cinema. Up until then, British films dealt mainly with the aristocracy, the bourgeoisie, and the elite, and the like. And these films kind of defied convention in that they were basically portrayals of working-class life in industrial towns, mining towns, factory towns, often in either the Midlands or the north of England, which is where Richardson himself was from. And they were very raw, very gritty. Many of them were adapted from either plays or other literary works, novels, short stories. 
And there was a group of filmmakers that emerged out of this movement in the late 50s and early 60s. And Tony Richardson was a seminal figure of this movement, as was Carol Rice and Lindsay Anderson, Brian Forbes, John Schlesinger. And the films that Richardson made that sort of helped define the British New Wave, there's four of them that we're going to be looking at today. The first is Look Back in Anger, The Entertainer, A Taste of Honey, and finally The Loneliness of the Long Distance Runner. These came out between 1959 and 1962. But before we get to all those, as per usual, we will start at the beginning. Now, Tony Richardson was born June 5th, 1928, in Shipley, which is in Yorkshire in the north of England. And his real name was Cecil Antonio Richardson. The Antonio actually was a name that dated back a couple centuries in the family. Legend has it, an ancestor of Richardson's, who was a, a bit of a voyager and an adventurer, he had settled in Argentina a couple centuries prior to Richardson's birth, and he had slaves back when, you know, that was common practice throughout the world. And when slavery ended in Argentina, one of this ancestor's slaves was still loyal to him, and his name was Antonio. And as a show of respect to that slave's loyalty, this ancestor of Richardson's basically made a pledge to keep the name Antonio alive throughout the Richardson lineage. And ultimately, Tony Richardson himself was named after an uncle, his father's brother, who had died young in World War I. And so Richardson grew up in Shipley. His father was a pharmacist. They had a pharmacy on the ground floor of the, the building that they lived in. And they weren't, they weren't an affluent family by any means, but in Richardson's book, The Long Distance Runner, he made a point to mention that they weren't exactly working class, which is interesting given the kind of work he would come to do as a filmmaker. And so Richardson grew up an only child. He had been sickly as a baby. He had fallen ill. And after recovering, his family uh, became very protective of him. They were very fretful over even just the simplest outings throughout Richardson's childhood. So he had a very sheltered life as a boy. And I guess being an only child and being sort of cloistered up in the house all the time, it made for an active imagination or a, a fascination with the unknown, if you will. I suppose that's partly responsible for Richardson's being an avid traveler as, a, as an adult. But in any case... So he grew up in Shipley, and he ended up going to boarding school, where he was throughout the duration of World War II, and he later got accepted to Oxford. Now, he got a scholarship to Oxford in history, but he ended up taking English. And Oxford at the time, at least according to Richardson, didn't have any film or theater programs, although there were a pair of dramatic societies that Richardson ended up becoming the head of, uh, I think both within his first year at Oxford. And he had been involved in the theater. He had sort of gotten his feet wet back in the north of England where he was from with his own little sort of theater company, and they had staged some small productions. And initially, he had gotten involved in the theater as an actor. I guess he just figured he wasn't suited to it, and he ended up transitioning to directing, and that became his, his ambition. And so he became very active, very involved in the dramatic societies at Oxford. And he ended up leading its two societies and put on a lot of plays while he was there, and it was his work at Oxford that got him accepted to a training program at the BBC in the early 50s after he graduated. Now, Richardson graduated in 1953, and it was around this time that he met uh, some very important people in his life. He had met Lindsay Anderson, who was a filmmaker who later directed The Sporting Life and If with Malcolm McDowell. He had met Gavin Lambert as well, and they were leading figures of a movement that came to be known as the Free Cinema. And primarily they made sort of raw, gritty, and uh, short documentary films. And they were all involved in a film journal called Sequence, for which Richardson was a critic, and he was also a critic for uh, Oxford's own magazine, Isis. And so he was a very busy man, and Richardson said himself he did not like sitting idle. And if you look at his body of work, I mean, it's, it's pretty obvious. He was incredibly prolific, both in his work on the screen and on the stage. But in any case, so he graduates from Oxford in 1953. He joins the BBC training program, and it's funny reading Richardson's book. He had... 
he really didn't miss, didn't mince words about what he thought about the BBC. He thought it was a pretty mediocre institution, and uh, especially at a time in the 50s where television was basically a brand new invention. And apparently he got off to a rough start at the BBC. Uh, but he ended up staying on and working for them. I suppose it paid the bills. And the longer he stayed and the more he stuck with it, he started doing more and more work for the drama department. And his assignments got better and better. And he later, later ended up staging teleplays and such, which was common even in American television in the 50s with Playhouse 90 and craft television theater and so on. And it was also in the 50s that he co-founded the English Stage Company with a, an actor and director named George Devine. The priority of this company was more on newer plays and works from young, up-and-coming playwrights as opposed to focusing on the classics. George Devine had been very active in the theater himself and was a very accomplished actor, and he had been a co-founder of uh, the New Vic Theater Company in the UK. And so he and Richardson paired up to form their own company, and they ended up setting up shop at the Royal Court Theater in London. And so they started putting on their own plays. Richardson was working in the free cinema movement. I mean, the heads of it were basically Carol Rice, Lindsay Anderson, Gavin Lambert, and an Italian filmmaker named Lorenzo Mazzetti, and they wrote a little manifesto. And Richardson ended up directing a short documentary film with Carol Rice in 1955 called Mama Don't Allow, and it basically covers uh, a group of young working-class people spending a night at a jazz club in the north of London with the Chris Barber band playing. And you can find it on YouTube if you'd like. It's, it's, very, it's just very raw, very gritty, and uh, a very intimate look at basically just a bunch of young people having a night on the town and having a reprieve from their jobs, which will be a recurring theme in, uh, in the kitchen sink dramas, which we'll talk about later. And so while working with the English Stage Company, Richardson and Devine basically put feelers out for young playwrights to submit some of their work, and it was this that brought Richardson and John Osborne together. John Osborne was a celebrated English playwright and um, a strange and complicated man, <laughs> to say the least. He was a man of many vices. He was married five times. Every one of those marriages except the last was tumultuous, and he sort of epitomized the angry young man label that a lot of critics later slapped on on the British New Wave and their assessments of it. But in any case, he had submitted a play to the English stage company called Look Back in Anger, and it was this work that r prompted Richardson to meet with Osborne, and ultimately they ended up staging the play in 1956. And the play was successful. It had a good run in the UK. It later made its way to the US. And after the success of the play, Richardson wanted to transition into filmmaking, and he and Osborne wanted to adapt the play themselves, as opposed to selling the film rights to a studio. Or... And so ultimately what happened, they ended up meeting a producer named Harry Saltzman while they were in the U.S. And he was your classic hustler. And he ended up joining Osborne and Richardson as a third partner in a production company that they came to call Woodfall. And so Saltzman came on as a producer and someone who could wheel and deal and find them financing for their projects and so on and so forth. And the company was formed in 1958. And Woodfall was actually named after a street that John Osborne and Mary Ewer, who was an actress in Richardson and Devine's company, the two of them were married. They had become husband and wife in, I think, 1957. And the, the house that they shared was on a street called Woodfall Street. So it was a total, the name of the company was a total fluke. But in any case, all this to say, all this leads to Richardson's first film and the first of his kitchen sink dramas uh, was the film adaptation of Look Back in Anger, which came out in 1959. And it stars Richard Burton as Jimmy Porter, who's an educated young man, but a bit of a sort of a case of wasted potential. He runs a sweet stand in a local market, and he's married to a woman named Allison, played by Mary Ewer. The two of them have been husband and wife for a couple of years, but they have a very tumultuous marriage. They are madly in love, but Jimmy is, I guess, the textbook angry young man that came to define a lot of films of the British New Wave, and he's, like I said, a case of 
failed potential, maybe misspent youth, there's some self-loathing there, and his resentment of his lot in life and his wife's well-to-do upbringing uh, leads to a lot of strain in their marriage. He goes on these vicious tirades, he is verbally abusive to his wife, sometimes physically abusive even, and they share a decrepit flat with a Welsh friend of theirs named Cliff, who runs a sweet stand with Jimmy. And things are further complicated when a friend of Allison's, Helena Charles, a young actress, comes to stay with them temporarily while she works on a play in town. And Richardson described the characters as being trapped in a cage. The cage not just being their sort of run-down flat at the top of this, this building in a blue-collar town, but also the cage just being their lot in life. I mean, you have Jimmy, who is probably better suited doing far bigger things than running a sweet stall in the local market. I mean, he, like I said, he's educated, erudite, and on paper certainly has the, the makings of someone smart enough to make something of himself. But here he and Allison are. He's very quick to anger. He's resentful of her background. Or maybe he just uses that as, a, as an excuse to lash out at her. What about Mummy? How does Mummy spend her day of rest? We usually go to Thank church. you, dear Vicar, for the nice, cozy sermon. And then she tramples off over better men's graves, home to an orgy of curry. Mummy and Daddy and Brother Nigel, if he's up from town. You know her brother Nigel? No, I don't. Well, you never heard so many well-bred commonplaces come from beneath the same bowler hat. The platitude from outer space. That's Brother Nigel. But like I said, I think there's some self-loathing there, and I think part of him thinks that he probably doesn't deserve better than what he's got. And the only reprieves for Jimmy that we see in the film are, like I said, him playing his trumpet. The occasional visit from a woman named Ma Tanner who basically became an adoptive mother to him and got him set up in a sweet stand and so on. A woman that he has great affection for and who's played by the great Edith Evans. And he has this game that he plays with his wife Allison where she pretends to be a squirrel and he pretends to be a bear. And you see Allison, played by Mary Ewer, say herself over the course of the film that it's their only... their only escape from the world they live in, from their drab and sort of bleak existence. Jimmy. You're very beautiful. Beautiful. Beautiful, great-eyed squirrel. Hoarding, <laughs> nut-munching squirrel with highly polished, gleaming fur and an ostrich feather of a tail. How I envy you. And you're a jolly super bear. A super marvelous bear. Bears and squirrels are marvelous. Something I was meaning to tell you. Listen. What is it? Your friend. She arrived. But Jimmy's temper, his verbal abuse, and his sort of deliberate efforts to make himself contemptible eventually cause Allison to leave him. And she's also pregnant and reluctant to tell him because of the state of their relationship. One of these days, you may want to come back. I want to be there that day. I want to stand up in your tears and splash about in them and sing. I want to be there when you grovel. I want to be there. I want to watch it. I want the front seat. I want to be there when you, when your face is rubbed in the mud. There's nothing else I can hope for anymore. There's nothing else I want anymore. There's a call for you downstairs. Well, can't be anything good, can it? And so when Helena Charles comes to stay with them, 
and Allison leaves, there's a bit of a love triangle situation that forms, and a romance blossoms between Jimmy and Helena. And gradually over the course of the film, little by little, Jimmy begins to lose what little he has. Like I said, his wife leaves him. His friend Cliff, who runs the sweet stand with him, he decides to leave town to do Lord knows what. But Jimmy's left without basically the only friend he has. Ma Tanner, a woman who he loves dearly, suffers a stroke and dies soon after. And ultimately, Allison decides to come back to him. And Helena, who's confessed to the affair and feels tremendous guilt over it, ultimately leaves Jimmy as well. And at the end of it, Jimmy and Allison are basically left with nothing but each other. And there's this sequence, this ending sequence that happens in the train station, which is kind of reminiscent of Brief Encounter, the David Lean film, a wonderful film, where Jimmy and Allison reunite. But it's not exactly a happy ending. All they really have is each other, especially after Allison ends up losing the baby. And ultimately, they see little choice for themselves but to sort of make a go of it, or make do with what they've got, and carry on as best they can. And so let's talk about the cast quickly. Richard Burton, like I said, plays Jimmy Porter, the great Welsh actor who, um, who was a knight of the Iguana and Equus. He was also married to Elizabeth Taylor twice, and their relationship was highly publicized. It was the subject of much gossip and got a lot of ink in the tabloids. And it's interesting, Kenneth High ended up, was the one who did the original stage production that Richardson worked on in his theater company. Although in Richardson's book, he said that Haig was difficult to work with. And ultimately, they ended up casting Richard Burton, and he is absolutely wonderful in this. He's got that rich Welsh voice. And some people thought he was too old to play the part, because when the film came out, Richard Burton was, I think, 34. But I thought he was perfect for it. Because the kind of crisis that Jimmy's in is... it. It makes sense that it would hit you after your 20s. If there's any time for you to sort of stumble your way through life and get your mistakes out of the way, and it's your 20s, basically. And here Jimmy is in his 30s, and he's kind of ruining his lot in life. And uh, I thought Burton was perfect casting, and he's got that rich Welsh voice, and he goes on these these long and sort of eloquent tirades, and they're kind of, they're a little too writerly, to be honest. Like, nobody's that eloquent when the, when they're in a fit of rage or when they're tearing into somebody. But Richard Burton just delivers them perfectly, just so vitriolic, and he really, really reduces his wife's existence to nothing on several occasions throughout the film. How does the Marquis of Queensbury Manor fool you? They'll kick you in the groin while you're handing your hat to the maid. Jimmy, please don't go on. They're either militant like a mummy and daddy, militant, arrogant, and full of malice, or else they're vague, like Nigel and her. Nigel and Alison. They're what they sound like. Sycophantic, phlegmatic, and pusillanimous. Big words. Shall I tell you what they mean? No, 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 not interested. Soapy, stodgy, and dim. And you have Mary Ewer, who plays his wife, Allison. She and John Osborne were husband and wife, like I said. They had a, they had a very tumultuous marriage, just like Jimmy and Allison in the film. And Mary Ewer, she's an okay actress. I mean, she's, she has a lot of raw talent, which helps in this film just because emotions are so high and with the tension and just how up and down her relationship is with Jimmy. I know I'm a lost cause, but I thought if you loved me, it didn't really matter. It doesn't matter. I was wrong. I don't want to be neutral. I want to be a lost cause. Don't you understand? It's gone, that helpless human being inside my body. I thought it was so safe and secure in there. But it's lost. All I wanted was to die. I was in pain. And all I could think of was you and what I'd lost. I thought if only he could see me now. So ugly. 
and stupid and ridiculous. I thought this is what he's wanted from me. This is what he wants to slash about him. I'm in the fire and I'm burning and all I want is to die. It cost him his child and any others I might have had. But Richardson said himself that, that she wasn't exactly a polished talent, but in any case, she plays Allison. Claire Bloom, the wonderful Claire Bloom, plays Helena Charles, the third member of this love triangle who comes to stay with them. And Claire Bloom, who is still around, she's in her early 90s, and she was in uh, she was in The Brothers Karamazov, she was in Crimes and Misdemeanors later in life, the great Woody Allen film, she was also in The King's Speech. Gary Raymond plays Cliff, the Welsh friend of, of Jimmy's and Allison's, and he is basically the one who keeps the peace. He loves both of them dearly. And he accepts Jimmy for who he is, it seems. And anytime tensions are high when the three of them are together, it's usually Cliff who takes it upon himself to try to defuse the situation and get Jimmy to behave. And So he's a very loyal friend to both of them. Ladies and gentlemen, as I was coming to the theater tonight, I was passing the stage door, a man comes up to me yeah. and he says, Have you seen nobody? Have I seen who? Have you seen nobody? Of course I haven't seen nobody. Kindly don't waste my time. Ladies and gentlemen, a little recitation entitled, She was only a gravedigger's daughter, but she loved lying under the sod. Are you they... quite sure you haven't seen nobody? Of course I haven't seen nobody. Will you kindly go away? Can't you see I'm trying to entertain this lady here? The lady pusillanimous. I can't find nobody anywhere, oh, see it? Chuck it, chuck it. Well, then, shall we dance? Oh. Yada, yada, da, yum. Oh, Come here often, do you? <laughs> Only in the mating season. All right, very funny, very funny. Now, let me go! I don't tell you apologize for being nasty to everyone. And Edith Evans, like I said before, she shows up in a small part as Ma Tanner. I don't think Ma Tanner shows up in the play. I only, I believe she's only mentioned in the original play. And so Osborne worked, worked the character into the script. And she's played by Edith Evans, and she isn't in it for very long, but I do quite like her in this. She is wonderful. And Richardson was very complimentary of Edith Evans. They worked together a couple of times, and he said that, uh, that Edith Evans was the consummate pro, did not fuck around, always came prepared, had a lot of class. We had lots of fun, him and me, being alive, you know, just being alive. That's enough for an old girl like me, chewing the cud and having a nipper, what you fancy. Wouldn't do if we was all like that, would it, mate, eh? Would it, mate? What do you really want, Jimmy? Everything. Nothing. And another great part is the part of Hearst, played by Donald Pleasance. Donald Pleasance was in, uh, was in the Halloween films. He, was, he played Ernst Stavro Blofeld in uh, one of a handful of actors to play him in the James Bond film series. And he was also in one of probably my favorite performance of his. He was in a Harold Pinter play called The Caretaker, which was adapted for the screen in 1963 with Alan Bates and Robert Shaw. And he plays a tramp in that film, and he is incredible. And he plays Hearst in this. He's the local market inspector who really enjoys wielding what little power he has over the local merchants. And uh, Richard Burton's character, Jimmy, can't stand him. He resents him for it. And he resents that, in a way, he's beholden to this guy. He's at the mercy of him, because he can take away his license for the sweet stand at just the slightest provocation. And in the last two roles, Glenn Byam Shaw plays the father of Mary Ewer's character. And Glenn Byam Shaw was actually a good friend of George Devine's, who plays a doctor in the film in a small part. The two of them had founded the Young Vic Theatre Company together, and so they both show up in small parts in this. And the film was decently successful, 
maybe not as successful as the play, but it took a, it took a bit of time for it to, to turn a profit and make its money back and whatever. And like I said, it was one of the first films that sort of kicked off this movement of the British New Wave, these kitchen sink dramas, these portrayals of ordinary, blue-collar, working-class life in England after the war. And interestingly enough, I mean, the, the, the movement kind of takes its name from the, the French New Wave, which was basically coming to prominence at around the same time. And these films were very similar. The French New Wave didn't really deal with working-class issues so much, but their, the styles and the aesthetics of them, they were unpolished, shot kind of documentary style, and it's very fitting of these British New Wave films, these kitchen sink dramas, because there's nothing, they're not polished films, but I mean, there's nothing pretty about their subject matter, and it, it, it just works, really, they're just these, these intimate, gritty portrayals of, uh, of working-class people who don't really think they have many prospects for, for a better life, and they're sort of resigned to their, their situations, their fates. And it's a wonderful film. Richard Burton was nominated for a Golden Globe for his performance, and rightfully so. I, I adore him in this. Uh, died young, unfortunately. He was in his 50s when he died and had a lot of vices and a lot of health problems that surfaced later in life. But in any case, so Richardson followed this film with another great one called The Entertainer, which came out in 1960. Now, this was also based on a play that John Osborne had written, and he had taken care of the adaptation as well. And it stars the great Laurence Olivier as Archie Rice, who's a failing music hall performer. And he's basically trying to hustle his way out of squalor <laughs> while the old music hall tradition is sort of dying off. The film is set in the 50s. Television is the brand new medium of, of choice. And so Archie Rice is basically trying to keep his racket going while at the same time his youngest son Mick has been sent off to Egypt to fight in the Suez Crisis. And this was a time basically came down to Israel invading Egypt and then the UK and France followed soon after, and I, th I believe the aim of the invasion was to, to gain control of the Suez Canal, which Egypt had been in control of. And it's a pretty sorry state of affairs for Archie Rice and his family. I mean, he's the film is set in this crummy sort of seaside town with a decrepit boardwalk that's basically a shell of itself. You have Archie who's playing, who can't fill a theater, he's basically playing the half a house at best. And you see him perform his routines, I mean, the guy can carry a tune, he can tap dance, but the guy's obviously a hack. Well, you're a lovely lot tonight, really lovely lot tonight. I've played in front of them all, you know. Yes, I've played in front of them all. The Queen, the Duke of Edinburgh, the Prince of Wales, and uh, what's the name of that other pub? <laughs> oh, blimey, that went better at first house. And Archie Rice is, he's a selfish bastard. <laughs> he basically refuses to take life seriously, even with the tax man looming. He owes all kinds of money in back taxes. Danger is imminent on that front. His, he's neglected his wife, who's basically become a lush. Look at that poor, pathetic old thing there. She's very drunk. And right now, her mazi, underdeveloped, untrained mind is racing because her bloodstream is full of alcohol we can't afford to give up. What's she talking about? She's tired and she's getting old. She's tired and she's tired of me. Nobody ever give her very much in this world except me. And my God, she's tired of that, aren't you, my old darling? You're tired of that, aren't you? I tried to make something of myself. I tried. I really did try. I was nothing much to look at. I was a plain kid. No, I wasn't. I wasn't even plain. I was the ugliest bloody kid you ever saw in your life. But I made something of myself. I made him want me. And yet for all his failures, all his shortcomings as a person, I mean, the, man, the man's a charmer. And even though as a performer he ain't really all that, at the same time you can't really imagine him being fit to do anything else, and neither, and neither can he, of course. And so over the course of the film, he meets and romances a young girl. He meets her at a, at a beauty contest that he was the MC for. And he strikes up a romance with her, not because he's in love, but because 
she comes from a wealthy family and has showbiz dreams of her own, and so he's hoping he can charm her parents into backing his next venture and help him put on an elaborate show. And later on, his father Billy Rice, who is an old musical performer himself, and sort of a relic of the old guard, he convinces his father to join his show, because his father gets wind of the affair, essentially poo-poos it, and Archie's meal ticket falls through, so out of guilt he agrees to star in Archie's next show in an old prestigious theater, but unfortunately it all goes to shit. <laughs> his father becomes ill, his son Mick is captured in Egypt, and his fate is uncertain. Meanwhile, his family, his eldest son, his daughter who's visiting from London, his wife Phoebe, all of them are fretting over basically just the state of their, their family, the state of their lives, over Mick being captured and his safety in Egypt. And without giving too much away, ultimately everything unravels. And I won't go into detail of what happens in the end. And so let's talk about the cast quickly. Laurence Olivier, like I said, plays Archie Rice. And Laurence Olivier was a titan of the British theater. He, John Gielgud, and Ralph Richardson are, ba are basically considered the sort of holy trinity of their generation when it comes to British male theater stars. And Laurence Olivier also had a long and tumultuous marriage with Vivian Lee. And he had a long and decorated career. Directed and starred in a bunch of his own Shakespeare adaptations. Won an Oscar for, for Hamlet in 1948. Uh, he was in Rebecca, the great Alfred Hitchcock film. He was in Wuthering Heights, Marathon Man, The Boys from Brazil. Just an incredible actor and an incredible talent. And he has a lot to do in this. And he knocks it out of the park. See this face? This face can split open with warmth and humanity. It can sing, tell the worst, unfunniest stories in the world to a great mob of dead, drab bugs. And it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter because look. Look at my eyes. I'm dead behind these eyes. I'm dead. Just like the whole dumb, shoddy lot out there. Uh, you have Brenda DeBanzi, who plays his wife Phoebe. Now, Phoebe is Archie's second wife in the film. He cheated on his first wife, his late first wife, with Phoebe, and later ended up marrying her. And Brenda DeBanzi really is wonderful in this. She is, unfortunately, years after her affair with Archie, she, you see her now, and she's basically become excess baggage. Archie doesn't really pay her much attention with his constant scheming, his philandering, his hustling, his nickel and diming. And she's basically left to sort of drink and get sloshed on her own in the house. And then uh, once she gets, once she's in her cups and gets hammered, she becomes very combative. And of course, she's, she's panicking over her son Mick being in combat in Egypt. And it's a wonderful performance from Brenda. Joan Plowright plays Laurence Olivier, Archie Rice's daughter, Jean who's an art teacher who's visiting up from London. She's engaged to be married. And Joan Plowright was another member of Richardson's English Stage Company. And she, Brenda DeBanzi, and Laurence Olivier had all starred in the original stage production. And it was during the making of The Entertainer that she and Laurence Olivier grew closer, even though they play father and daughter. They began an affair while they were working on The Entertainer together. And they were later married, about a year or so after the film came out. And she's great in this as well, but she's more of a casual observer. She's not really in the shit. She lives in London. And you basically, she is basically a bystander. Roger Livesey shows up as Billy Rice, Laurence Olivier's father, who's an old, who's an old musical performer. Like I said, he's a relic of the old guard. He's basically a product of a bygone era. And there's a great moment in the film. He's at his, he's at his social club, and he ends up taking the stage. He has, he's 
at the time of the film, he isn't performing anymore. He's he's a little up there in age. But you see him in the scene at his at his social club. He ends up taking the stage and he's regaling the people there with all these old music hall songs and all the old hits from back in the day. And it's clear that he can still sort of he can still work a room and have the meaning out of the palm of his hand. And he's still a very charismatic figure. And it's great. You see him regaling them in that scene in the pub. And then after a while, it just cuts abruptly, and you see Archie in his his half-empty music hall. <laughs> trying desperately to keep the audience interested in his hack sort of third-rate routine. It's a wonderful, wonderful contrast and an abrupt cut as well. And interestingly enough, Live Z and Laurence Olivier are father and son in the film, but they were only a year apart in age. I quite like Roger Live Z in this. He, um, you know, is very, very well put together, very dignified. Another guy with a lot of class. I'll say this for Archie. He always saw that you were nicely turned out. He was a smart little boy himself. Used to dress them in sailor suits then. Funny how they all turn out. How is Dad? He's a fool. Oh? Trying to raise money for another show when he hasn't enough to keep this one running. Well, what's this one like? I don't know. I haven't seen it. I wouldn't. They don't want human beings anymore. We also have Alan Bates, who plays Olivier's eldest son, Frank. Alan Bates was yet another member of the English Stage Company. And his character, Frank, is basically the only pragmatist of the group. And you see Phoebe, Brenda DeBanzi's character, say it at some moment in the film that he's basically the most sensible one of the bunch. And Alan Bates was actually the first actor to play Cliff in the stage production of Look Back in Anger. He wasn't in the film, but very much like his character, Cliff, he's kind of adrift in this in The Entertainer. Like I said, a very sensible thinker. He doesn't really see anything keeping them in their little sort of run-down seaside town. There's nothing for them there, and yet, like Cliff in Look Back in Anger, he's kind of adrift. He doesn't really know which way to go. Oh, why does he go on with it? Who, Dad? Mm. In the blood, I suppose. Yours, too, I'll bet. Oh, I just wish sometimes he'd face up to reality. Well, I don't think he ever faces up to much else. He knows musicals dying better than you do. And what about you, Frank? Are you going on with it? Talent got a bit thin when it come down to me. And the courage, too. Courage? Yeah. Courage to go on, like Archie. He's got it. And in the smaller parts, we have Daniel Massey, who plays Jean's partner, her fiancé, her significant other, whatever. And Daniel Massey was the son of the great Raymond Massey, who we talked a little bit about in our Elia Kazan series. Shirley Ann Field plays the young woman that Olivier meets at the beauty pageant, and she comes from a wealthy family, and he tries to sort of, you know, keep her on the hook and keep her interested so he can get backing from them. Shirley Ann Field, in this same year, in 1960, was in Peeping Tom, which later became a cult classic, directed by Michael Powell, a great British film, and she was also in Saturday Night and Sunday Morning with Albert Finney, which was directed by Carol Rice. We're going to talk about that a little later. And Thora Hurd plays her mother, a beloved British actress. She isn't in this for very long, but I really, really do like her in this. Just in those couple of little scenes she's in, she's very charming and endearing. And she later starred in A Kind of Loving, another great British kitchen, kitchen sing film with Alan Bates, directed by uh, John Schlesinger. Of course, you see, I always knew Artina had it in it when she was a little girl, you know. Oh, yes, she was always doing impersonations. Weren't you, love? Oh, that. Oh, that. <laughs> Film stars, you know. Veronica Lake, she used to do. And Donald Duck. And oh, the, who else did you do, love? Oh, I don't remember. I was only a little kid. Oh, I knew she had it in her then. That's why I thought she'd better have elocution lessons. Well, she started those before she started going to school. Well, she's worked hard. Of course, she's got her head screwed on. Well, you'll have seen that. 
You see, she wants to get up, so I'm quite sure she will. All she needs is a little push. Eee, when you see some of those girls on television, honest. <laughs> and finally, Albert Finney in his film debut shows up in a tiny part at the beginning of the film. He plays the youngest son of the Rice family who is sent off to Egypt to fight in the Suez Crisis. And so, like I said, it was based on a play by John Osborne, and the play is basically an allegory, an extended metaphor, and basically a eulogy for the glory days of the UK. And this is a recurring thing in the British New Wave. Britain's best days are behind it. The war is over. The Brits don't have their colonies anymore. They're no longer the pinnacle of Western civilization. Much like the old seaside fairs, the old boardwalk, the old musical tradition, all that is fading away. Uh, you've been a, a good audience. Very good. A very good audience. Let me know where you're working tomorrow night. I'll come and see you. And there's a sort of cynicism about the film with just the state of the UK, where Osborne and Richardson and there a lot all thought Britain was headed. And I guess that cynicism is kind of embodied by Alan Bates' character, Frank. And it's a wonderful film. The performances are great. Laurence Olivier is incredible. And this performance, even though the film wasn't really successful, it became one of the defining performances on screen of, of Olivier's career, and rightfully so. Richardson was very complimentary of his, his abilities as an actor, even though he was a little difficult to work with in a stage production. He was in awe of Olivier's talent and just his the way he was able to embody Archie Rice. And ultimately, Olivier ended up getting nominated for an Oscar in 1960 for Best Actor. Burke Lancaster ended up winning for the Richard Brooks film Elmer Gantry. And also, fun fact, the great British director Peter Yates served as an assistant director on this film. He and uh, Richardson worked together a couple of times, and Peter Yates later ended up directing some great films, Bullet with Steve McQueen, The Friends of Eddie Coyle, Breaking Away. And so the same year The Entertainer came out in 1960, Richardson and John Osborne ended up parting ways with Harry Salzman. Harry Salzman, like I said, was supposed to be the money man, the hustler of the trio, Richardson and Osborne, of course, were the artists. Um, but Harry Saltzman became sort of, uh, maybe not secretive, but he wasn't really keeping them in the loop as to his endeavors and where he was getting his money from. And finances were always a problem, especially early on in the, the days of Woodfall and their production company. And so they had kind of a falling out. They and Saltzman ended up parting ways, although Saltzman kept his producer credit on the next film Woodfall produced, which was Saturday night and Sunday morning. This came out in 1960. It was a breakout performance from Albert Finney. It was directed by Carol Rice. We talked about it in our Carol Rice episode. And he was a leading figure of the free cinema movement, British New Wave as well, although his later films didn't really fall into that mold. And that film was a huge success, and Harry Saltzman actually ended up parlaying its success into producing uh, the first nine James Bond films, I think. And so after the success of Saturday Night and Sunday Morning, Richardson ends up making his first Hollywood film, which is called Sanctuary. It came out in 1961. 20th Century Fox put it out, and it was starring Lee Remick and Yves Montand, two fantastic actors, although Richardson said Yves Montand is probably the most vain actor he ever worked with. And it was an awful experience for him. It was based on the William Faulkner work Sanctuary and Requiem for a Nun, the latter of which Richardson had staged. Uh, and Richardson said he had, an, he had an awful experience. He clashed with not just the studio heads, but a bunch of their departments. And he never really saw the finished film. He, he did not enjoy the experience at all. And so after that experience in America, he made his next film called A Taste of Honey, 
Now, Taste of Honey was actually uh, a Sheila Delaney play. She had written it when she was 19 years old. Richardson had gotten the rights to it. And while he was making Sanctuary for 20th Century Fox, he had begun rehearsing his stage adaptation of A Taste of Honey. And the play ended up going to Broadway in New York. Joan Plowright and Angela Lansbury were the two stars. And it was a very successful run, although Joan Littlewood had directed the original stage production in the UK. And it was in 1961 that Richardson's film adaptation of A Taste of Honey came out. And he and Sheila Delaney worked on the script together. So even though it was a Woodfall film production, which Richardson and John Osborne ran, Osborne did not work on this script and it was not based on one of his original works. And this film is set in the blue-collar town of Salford, which is in the north of England. It's near Manchester and it's actually where Albert Finney was from, coincidentally. And it follows a teenage girl named Joe, played by Rita Tushingham, who, like many characters in these kitchen sink films, is kind of adrift. She hates school, she has a talent for drawing, but isn't really encouraged. She doesn't really have any stability or any direction in life, any ambition. And obviously what doesn't help is her basket case mother, who's played by the wonderful Dora Bryan. Her mom is unreliable. She's unemployed. The two of them move around from place to place because she is basically only out for a good time. She keeps failing to pay the rent, and so they have to keep bouncing around from hovel to hovel. And they end up moving into a new into new digs at the beginning of the film. The roof's leaking. No, it's not. It's condensation. soon after that that Joe has an encounter with a young black sailor and the two of them have a bit of a dalliance they have a brief fling and this young sailor named Jimmy ends up leaving her pregnant before he departs on his ship and the two of them never see each other again while at the same time her mother is engaged to be married to a man named Peter Smith and her relationship with him puts a strain on her already difficult relationship with Joe and Joe seems to be very jealous of her relationship she doesn't seem to be attracted to Peter himself but she's a little resentful maybe she feels left out maybe she's jealous of that her mom has found some semblance of companionship and she kind of acts out when the three of them are together and her mom is given an ultimatum by Peter and she sides with him so Joe is basically a teenage unwed mother who's left to fend for herself and so she ditches school she gets a job in a, a local shoe store she gets her own hovel <laughs> in an old workshop and it's during this time while she's basically out on her own and left to support herself that she meets a young textile student, a boy named Jeffrey, who is gay. And I only mention that because this was at a time when homosexuality and much less sympathetic gay characters in the film were a rarity. And this was also at a time when homosexuality was illegal in the UK. And so Joe and Jeff end up becoming fast friends. They move in together. And sure enough, before long, they end up finding a bit of stability together. They build a little home together, a small, sort of quaint, maybe not quaint, but they, they build a bit of a life together. And Jeffrey's very doting on her, he tends to the homes, he helps her through her pregnancy, and the two of them are inseparable. And even though Jeffrey is gay, he offers to be Joe's lifetime companion. You're in a bit of a mess, aren't you? Oh, I don't care. 
You can get rid of babies before they're born, you know. Yes, I know, but I think that's terrible. When's it due? About November. Your mother should know. Why? Well, look at the things she'll have to buy for a baby. Clothes. And you need a cotton of pram, won't you? Oh, shut up. I'm not planning big plans for this baby or dreaming big dreams. You know what happens when you do things like that? This baby will be born dead or daft or... You're just feeling a bit depressed, that's all. You'll be your usual self once you get used to the idea. And what is my usual self? My usual self is a very unusual self. And don't you forget that, Geoffrey Ingham. I'm an extraordinary person. There's only one of me, like there's only one of you. We're unique. Young. Good rivals. Flashy. We're bloody marvellous. Unfortunately, Helen, Joe's mom, comes back to see her abruptly because her marriage has hit the rocks. She had another failed relationship. So she basically forces her way back into Joe's life. She becomes a threat to the life that Joe and Jeffrey have built together, and so she and Jeffrey begin butting heads. And ultimately, Helen forces Jeff out, without Joe's knowledge. And Jeffrey is left with little choice but to leave them be and go off on his own. And unfortunately, he never gets to give her a proper farewell. Although that said, even though Joe and Helen are basically stuck with each other again, the film doesn't really end on a bleak note, unlike The Entertainer and several other films of the British New Wave. Joe actually seems content, maybe even happy at the end of the film. And you see her out in front of her building, playing with some of the neighborhood children, and one of them hands her a sparkler, and you see this look of sort of childlike wonderment on her face. And this film is important, one of the most important films of the British New Wave to have come out of this era, because, like I said, it tackled very many sensitive subjects for its era. For one thing, it tackled interracial relationships. Joe and Jimmy, her lover at the beginning of the film, they're an interracial couple, and it wasn't something that was often explored in cinema at this time. Very few films did it. There were Shadows, the John Cassavetes film. There was Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, which came out a few years later in 1967. But still a very taboo subject for its time. Helen? Yes, love? My baby may be black. You what, love? My baby may be black. Oh, shut up. You'll be giving yourself nightmares. It's true. You don't mean that sailor was a black man? Yeah. Oh my God, I need a drink. And, of course, teen pregnancy, unwed mothers were also still very sensitive subjects for their time. And perhaps most importantly, like I said before, you have the character of Jeff, who is a rare, one of the few, if not the only, openly gay characters in, in cinema of that era, to be not just in a substantial role, but to be portrayed in a sympathetic light. And he, he's, a, he's a wonderful character. He's loyal to Joe. He's nurturing. The two of them have a, a wonderful relationship together, even though it's, it's not a romantic relationship, but it is very much a partnership. I like you. Oh, do you like me more than you don't like me, or don't you like me more than you do? Now you're being Irish. Well, a fine Irish woman you are. Where did your ancestors fall? Back the Sulphur Town Hall? My mother's father was Irish, and she had me by an Irishman. Village idiot from what I can make out. You what? A frolic in a nail loft one afternoon. She said he had eyes like me. Are you making it up? No. He lived in the twilight land, my daddy. The land of the daft. Did Ellen tell you all this? Yes. Yes, I thought so. She likes to make an effect, that one. 
Well, can you see Helen going out with a real loony? Oh, thanks, Jeff. You're a cure. This film came out in 1961. Homosexuality in the UK was illegal until 1967, and only then it was only partially decriminalized. Even then, sort of public displays of affection between same-sex couples were, were very much frowned upon. And not just that, the age of consent for same-sex encounters was, was 21 years old, as opposed to the heterosexual age of con consent, which was, I think, 15 or 16 in the UK. And so the character of Jeff and the role he plays in this film was actually very daring for its time, and Murray Melvin is wonderful. He was the only member of the cast to have starred in Joan Littlewood's original production and the film adaptation. And a problem Richardson had, in his book, he explained how he had a wonderful time making the film and that he was free of any constraints, he wasn't beholden to anyone, especially after the difficult experience he had making Sanctuary for a studio. This was an indie production through his own production company. And granted, you're not working with a big budget, you can't just throw money at every problem, but much like what we talked about in our John Cassavetes episode, you're doing it all on your own terms. And there's a freedom in that. And so Richardson had a great time making this film. However, he did have some difficulty casting the character of Joe. Joan Plowright, who had played her in the Broadway staging of the play, was too old by this time to play Joe. I mean, it's supposed to be a teenage girl. And Richardson ended up looking through 2,000 candidates for the part of Joe. And he basically stumbled upon Rita Tushingham, who was 19 when the film came out. She had next to no acting experience, and he ended up casting her. And she is wonderful in this. And she went on to a great career. She did another film for Woodfall Productions called Girl with Green Eyes, which came out in 1964, I believe, although Richardson didn't direct that one. She was later in uh, Dr. Zhivago, the great David Lean film. She was also in The Knack and, and How to Get It. And she's still around. She's going to be 80 this year, I believe. And Rita Tushingham actually very much enjoyed working with Tony Richardson. She had a great time making the film. It was like a family, it, the atmosphere on set, because everyone wanted to work for Tony. And one thing also that Tony did, which was great, was he never let us see rushes. And I think that was a, a, a fantastic thing he did. But you'd be concentrating too much on, you know, what you were doing, and especially if it's your first film, and to this day I never see the rushes of what I'm doing. I think his ability, not only with the actors, but also he would cast his crew. And it was very important to him. The whole, it wasn't just the actors he was interested in, he was interested in every single person on the crew. And that's what made it such a great atmosphere to work with him. And um, Tony didn't do many takes. He knew what he wanted. Dora Bryan plays Rita Tushingham's mother, Helen. Her performance is my favorite of this film. She's a total basket case, <laughs> totally unreliable. And it's a great sort of reversal of roles because you have Joe, who, like I said, is, is basically a teen mother and she is left to sort of grow up pretty fast and fend for herself and kind of find some stability in her life on her own and basically find all the things that her mother should have provided for her. Meanwhile, you have Helen, Dora Bryan's character, who is who's totally immature She's lazy, she's just out for a good time, she bounces around from man to man. And so it's, it's, it's a wonderful sort of juxtaposition between the two characters, and I love Dora Bryan in this. Who's that? It's my daughter. Hello, then. What's this one called? Oh, go on, go to bed, go on. Are you coming? Not yet. Then I'll wait for you. Is she always like this? Oh, she's jealous. Well, that's something I didn't bargain for. She ought to be in bed. I know she should. Shall I retire while you kiss her good night? I'll kiss you good night, young lady, and it really will be good night. Hey! 
Take care of your mother while she's ailing. You know how fragile these old ladies are. Oh, buss off. Ooh, he's a nice the beggar, that one. You have Murray Melvin, like I said before, who plays Jeff, and he's great in this as well. He had been in John Littlewood's original staging of the play. Robert Stevens plays Dora's husband-to-be, Peter. Robert Stevens was another great British actor, highly acclaimed in the UK, very well respected and highly regarded. Didn't really find the crossover success in the US that uh, Richard Burton and the like did. But a wonderful actor nonetheless. He was in the great Carol Rice film, Morgan, A Suitable Case for Treatment, which I love very much. We talked about that in uh, our Carol Rice episode. He was also in Cleopatra and The Duelists, and he was also married to the great Maggie Smith for a time. And rounding out the main cast is Paul Dankwa, who plays Jimmy, the black sailor that, that leaves Joe pregnant. And Paul Dankwa, who was actually gay himself, and so he knew very well what it, what it was like living in the UK as a gay man. And he had done some screen work in the 1960s, both in film and television, but I think he left show business altogether after that. And it's a smaller but important part in the film. And so they make up the main cast. And it's a wonderful film. It tackled many sensitive subjects for its time, like I said, very ahead of its time, very daring in its subject matter. And Rita Tushingham and Murray Melvin both ended up winning awards at the Cannes Film Festival. Hey, I've got something for you. Well, I got it from the clinic, you know. I thought you could practice a few awards on it. The colour's wrong. What? The colour's wrong. I'll bash his brains out and kill it. I don't want this baby, Jeff. I don't want to be a mother. I don't want to be a woman. <laughs> and not only was the play successful, the film was also very successful, in the US included, and Rita Tushingham ended up getting nominated for a Golden Globe for Most Promising Newcomer, which is an award that they don't give out anymore. But nonetheless, between the success of A Taste of Honey and Saturday Night and Sunday Morning, it was a great time in Richardson's career and in his life. He was enjoying success on his own terms without being beholden to anyone, like I said, or being at the mercy of a studio without having the brass and other departments meddling in his business. It was total artistic freedom with commercial success, which is basically the dream if you're going to be a filmmaker, I suppose. Well, when you said before that you do consider yourself part of the forefront of British cinema, I know why I asked the question. I'd like to know why you answered. Because, in the first place, I control the only company that is totally devoted to making these new films, the only company that they exist at the moment, with the result that I have been associated with m most of the films that you would call the new films mm -hmm. in England, and that... Uh, at the moment, the easiest way for anyone to make that film is through my company. I see. I mean, I know that I've been also associated with the sort of forefront of the British theatre, but that's easier to say because then it doesn't involve, you know, any, any sort of judgment on oneself. And so the fourth and last kitchen sink drama of Richardson's that we're going to be covering came out in 1962. Like I said, he was a very prolific man. And this film is called The Loneliness of the Long Distance Runner. Now, this was based on a short story by Alan Silito. He had written the novel, which was the basis for Saturday Night and Sunday Morning, and he had adapted the film for the screen as well. And so this film was based on a short story of his, and, and as with Saturday Night and Sunday Morning, he ended up writing the screenplay. So John Osborne wasn't involved in the script either. And the film stars Tom Courtney in one of his first films as a young man named Colin Smith. He's a young man from Nottingham, and he's sent to a reform school, or what's known as a borstal in England, after robbing a bakery. And it's while he's at the Borstal that the governor, the man running the school, the headmaster, if you will, played by the great Michael Redgrave, uh, the governor spots his talent 
as a runner and takes a bit of a shine to young Kotlin because he hopes to groom him and train him for an upcoming race against a prestigious school, basically thinking that a win in the race will make the Borstal look look good as a, as a rehabilitative institution and not just a, a punitive institution. And so in preparing for this race and being sort of anointed as, uh, as the school's representative in this upcoming race, Colin ends up getting special privileges during his time at the Borstal. I see from the sports report that Smith is making good time in these practice runs. Better than I expected, sir. I think you were right. You still don't trust him, do you? I wouldn't like to say, sir. <laughs> well, we'll soon see, shall we? Stand him at ease. At ease! Well, lads, you've all heard me say that if you'll play ball with us, we will play ball with you. I've told the boy here that I and the staff were prepared to trust him. And we keep our word. Smith. Sir? Unlock the gate, Mr. Craig. Smith, off you go. The usual run. You've done it many times under supervision, and this time you're going to do it alone. Be back at the usual time, hmm? Off you go. Thank you, sir. Meanwhile, as you watch this part of the story unfold, we're shown flashbacks of Colin's life in Nottingham and how he came to end up in this reform school in this Borstal. And they live in a shitty prefab house in a poor section of Nottingham. This is in the Midlands. And early on in the film, you see Colin's father die young. He's been toiling away in a factory all his life, making shit money, and he ends up contracting an illness and dying before his time. His mother is unmoved by his father's death, and quickly she takes in a lover who moves into their house, a man Colin resents greatly. And so it's after his father's death that Colin is expected to become the breadwinner of the family. He's the oldest son. And after his father's death, they get a shitty insurance payout from his factory. His mother and the rest of the family spend it immediately on basically material goods. And it's not much of a payout to begin with. And Colin, in an act of contempt, turns down a job at the factory after seeing what it did to his father. He burns his portion of the insurance money and spends what little is left on an outing with friends. And while he should be looking for employment, he doesn't really bother. He doesn't pursue employment because, quite frankly, what's the point? I mean, here his father was gainfully employed for many, many years, and look how he ended up. And like I said, you see these, you see these characters in these kitchen sink dramas, these British New Wave films who are basically, like I said, resigned to their position, victims of circumstance, if you will. There's really no way up for them, or at least none that they can see. And so between his resentment for his mother and the way his father went out, and basically for what little options he has, ultimately it leads to a big clash between Colin and his mother. She throws him out of the house and tells him not to come back until he's won some money for the family. What the hell are you playing at? Well, he's trying to tell me what to do with my own house. Come no, look, it's sharp, you. Everything in this house belongs to me. So get that straight. Nothing belongs to you. Now turn it up. Do it yourself. Don't you talk to me like that. Turn it up. I'm not having anybody ordering me about. That's what you think. I slave from morning till night, and all you can do is sit around with that gormless good-for-nothing there. You brought your fancy man in here before me father was cold. And so Colin heads out with his best friend Mike, his partner in crime. They end up breaking into a bakery, stealing the cash box, and they only take about 70 pounds. Which maybe to a boy like Colin might seem like a small fortune, but really in the grand scheme of things it isn't very much. I mean, it's petty theft. And ultimately he gets caught, he gets sent to this Borstal, and after his talent as a runner is spotted by the governor, and he begins getting special treatment leading up to the big race, Colin begins to draw the ire and the jealousy of some of the other boys at the school. And he doesn't get punished as harshly, or not even punished at all, really. You see the boys, they start a riot in the cafeteria, they stage a revolt over the poor quality of the food, you see other boys get beaten for certain offenses. They get given harder work assignments. Meanwhile, Colin basically makes it out of all these incidents unscathed. Or unpunished, rather. Looks like you're going to be our champion running now, Smitty. Yeah, that's not so daft. 
And finally the day the big race comes against this prestigious rival school and Colin gradually works his way to the lead and he establishes a comfortable lead and as he's making his way to the finish line towards the end of the race he plays out all these recent events in his life in his head including a stay at the Borstal, his father's death and ultimately he makes a decision right as he's about to reach the finish line to throw the race he stops running because ultimately the decision comes down to being his own person instead of enjoying what little privileges he has in this Borstal and allowing himself to be used by his governor as basically a ringer that'll make the school look good he basically decides to be his own man and he stops running right before the finish line his rival catches up to him and the Borstal ends up losing the race and of course at the end of it he goes right back to being ignored by the governor he's just another boy in the Borstal he's of no use to him anymore and so there's this commentary about the class system and again it kind of comes back to someone who really doesn't have very much in life but the best he can do is live on his own terms shitty as his situation may be and it's another wonderful film and let's talk about the cast quickly Tom Courtney who like Richardson himself was from Yorkshire in the north of England and like I said this was one of his first roles and he went on to a wonderful wonderful career he later starred in Billy Liar in 1963 the John Schlesinger film uh, he was in Dr. Zhivago as well he was in King Rat he was in The Dresser with Albert Finney in the early 80s and it's funny uh, Richardson talked about casting him in his book unlike A Taste of Honey where he had to sift through 2,000 candidates before eventually casting Rita Tushingham as Joe he ended up meeting Tom Courtney by chance at a party one night and ended up offering him the part on the spot and it worked out beautifully I love Courtney in this he's got that he's got that great sort of sullen face where he looks kind of boyish and but also like an old man at the same time <laughs> and given the sort of drab and bleak atmosphere of the film and its subject matter it, it, it works perfectly and he is he's wonderful in this just a tonal natural uh michael redgrave the great vanessa redgrave's father and uh tony richardson's father-in-law to be starred as the governor in this and was also an oscar nominee and a very decorated actor in his own right this morning's demonstration in the dining hall is something that i shall have to make a pretty good effort to forget if you have any reasonable complaint about the food it must be made at the proper time and to the proper person, and that is to me. Now, understand that and remember it. Of course, I know what sparked this off. A boy has absconded. As it happens, he was a boy that we thought very highly of. He will be caught, he'll be brought back, and severely punished. I'm told that one of the reasons he did it was that he was disappointed. Disappointed? I wonder if he realizes how disappointing this is for me. This place has a very good record, and anybody who lets that record down is letting each one of you down. And now to look on the brighter side. You all know about the sports day against Randy, with Randy, with boys very much like yourselves, except they've had several advantages that you have not. I want you to win. And in particular, I want you to win that Challenge Cup for the long distance. For that, if for no other reason, I've decided to let the curtain go up on our concert tonight. So, enjoy yourselves and give our friends here a good hand. And you have Avis Bunnage, 
who plays the mother of Tom Courtney's character. Avis Bunnage was actually the original Helen in uh, the first stage production of A Taste of Honey, and she later went on to star in The L-Shaped Room, directed by Brian Forbes, which is another important film in the British New Wave. And James Bolam plays Tom Courtney's best friend, Mike, in the film, and the two of them are also partners in crime. And sure enough, he ends up in the Borstal as well later on in the film. And so they're the main cast, and there's this, there's this wonderful sequence in the film where Colin's been at the Borsal for a while, he's training for the big race, he's getting special treatment from the governor, and he's out on his work detail, and he is surprised by the governor, who lets him go on his first practice run without supervision. They open the gates for him, he seems to have earned the trust of the governor and the brass, they let him go on his first unsupervised run, and it follows Tom Courtney's character Colin as he's running through this sort of wooded area, there's this nature trail, and he's running through the leaves, and he's marveling at these great big tall trees and looking up at the sky, and he's you watch him go on this run on his own for the first time since being thrown in the borstal, and it's a wonderful sequence, and you just watch him savor that little slice of freedom that he has, that temporary freedom, this moment of reprieve, and throughout this whole sequence, there's this upbeat jazz number that's playing, and it's a wonderful, wonderful sequence. And this film turned out to be the last of the kitchen sink drums that Richardson made over the course of his career. There was four of them, and like I said, they really helped define that era of British filmmaking. And a lot of critics like to say that Richardson was a director without sort of a distinct style of his own, because you look at the work he did after that, and it's basically all over the place, genre-wise, aesthetically. So a lot of, you know, a lot of scholars and the theorists kind of, kind of labeled him as a director with no discernible style. I mean, I just think of my work as a sort of process of freeing myself in a way from theatrical influences and from being a theatre director. And I think that the only thing that I can say, I think that each film that I've made has been, with the exception of a sort of terrible aberration in Hollywood, um, has been a sort of gradually an attempt to become more free and more cinematic. And I think the last film that I've made, the long distance runner, is, you know, more, more free still. But if there's any pattern that you can draw in Richardson's work with, with these four films, and maybe part of the reason for that is because Richardson himself, he admitted this, he never re-examined his work or revisited any work he did once it was finished. He made a project, he enjoyed the process of making it, that to him was the beauty of his profession, of course, as it is with basically any artist worth their salt. Uh, but once the project was done, he put it out, and that was the end of it. He didn't revisit it, he didn't look back on it. And these kitchen sink dramas, they were, like I said, they were a big shift in British cinema. The working class were never really at the center of, of the British films of old. And there was a lot of commentary on the class system, like I said. You find something funny? Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Well, is there anything on your mind? I was just wondering whether you were the, uh, governor's assistant. <laughs> <laughs> You'll find it pays to play the governor's game here. All of us is graded. And you don't get out till you make top grade. I'm not taking any risks or losing any privileges because one of you bleeders kicks up a stink against the house of bad name. And always remember, they've got the whip hand. Do you know what I'd do if I had the whip hand? I'd get all the coppers, governors, posh oars, army officers and members of parliament, and I'd stick them up against this wall and let them have it. Because that's what they'd like to do to blokes like us. Well, you'll learn. We'll see. Richardson himself had a lot of contempt for the class system and just how just how it was synonymous with with British culture, just this obsession with with social status and etiquette and all these sort of class taboos and snobbery that came with it and the elocution lessons and 
and all that nonsense, right? And Richardson himself ended up losing his, his Yorkshire accent. But in any case, I digress. I don't know, you look at these films and if you can summarize them, like I said, they're basically these raw portrayals of blue-collar life, working-class life in the UK after World War II. And a lot of these films take place in either the Midlands or the north of England, which were towns that had been industrialized. Nottingham, Salford, Liverpool, Manchester, Sheffield. You watch these old, these old blue-collar towns, these old factory towns, and they're basically remnants of the Industrial Revolution. I mean, the UK was the birthplace of it. And if there's anything that exemplifies just what a shell of itself that old industrialized Britain had become, I mean, you watch Rita Tushingham and The Taste of Honey, you cut to the early 60s and she's living in basically an old, decrepit workshop that I'm sure at one point was alive and bustling. I think there's a great beauty about all the, the northern towns. I think they've got great character and great uh, strength and they each have their own sort of pictorial qualities. And just, you know, there's a lot of the sort of new writing in the theatre of comfort um, the north and uh, there hasn't, and a lot of the I mean, most of the people who've, who who are writing now have, in fact, for some curious reason, you can never quite explain these things historically, have, in fact, come um, somewhere from, from the north. And this is the sort of world we grew up in. Of course, it isn't all the sort of depressing, uh, uh, monstrous sort of product of the Industrial Revolution. Parts of it are, but it also, that whole world evolved, you know, its own culture and its own... Um, it's own, it's own look. And a lot of the critics sort of like to slap that angry young man label on the films of the British New Way because a lot of the leading characters in it, right? Colin Smith in The Loneliness of the Long Distance Runner, Richard Harris's character in This Sporting Life, which was directed by Lindsay Anderson, Albert Finney's character in Saturday Night and Sunday Morning, and certainly Jimmy Porter in Look Back in Anger. You ever seen anybody die? No, I haven't. For 12 months, I watched my father die. When I was 10 years old. He'd come back from the war in Spain, you see. All my mother could think was that she was married to somebody who was on the, on the wrong side in all things. Perhaps she pitied him. But I was the only one who cared. Hour upon hour, I sat in that little room. He would talk, you know. Pour out all that was left of his life to her. Small, frightened boy could barely understand half of what he said. All I could feel was, was the despair and the bitterness. The sweet, sickly smell of a dying man. See, I... I learned at an early age what it is to be angry. Angry. Helpless. And so, the, you know, the term isn't entirely inaccurate. And it was applied to a lot of the writers that came out of that period, too. Alan Silito, John Osborne, of course. But Osborne and Richardson both did not like that label at all. And it is a little reductive, I mean, if we're going to be honest. And like I said when talking about The Entertainer, there was a there's a certain cynicism about these films with just the state of the UK in general, right? It's after the war, the days of Britain as a big colonial power are long gone, and it basically portrays Britain as kind of a shell of its former self. And at the center of these stories are people who really don't have much going for them. They're kind of resigned to their fate, but resentful of it at the same time. They don't really see much of a way out. There aren't really that many prospects that are available to them. They're just, you know, they're, they're kind of dealing with a pretty low ceiling. And they're kind of accepting, reluctantly or begrudgingly accepting of their lot in life. But of course their outlook puts a lot of a strain on, uh, on the major relationships in their lives. 
You see it in Saturday Night and Sunday Morning, in which Albert Finney is basically just engaging in various acts of contempt, committing various forms of fuck you for an hour and 24 minutes. And you see the same with Jimmy Porter, just the, the way his, his outlook, his anger, his self-loathing, all that just sort of makes him lash out at the people in his life, his wife in particular. And one thing that is important to note in, in these films, and we talked about a, a little bit about this in our John Cassavetes episode, our first one, which uh, I encourage you to listen to if you haven't. At the end of these films, there is no closure, there is no neat and tidy and upbeat ending. You know, it's these films end and nothing is really sorted. And the characters are basically just left to carry on and make do of their situations, and maybe that's partly because, you know, just dealing with the devil that you know is there's, there's a certain comfort in that as opposed to trying to start over and venturing off into the great unknown. You know, sad and drab as their existence may be, these characters basically end up choosing to stick with the life that they know best. And so a lot of these films have a sort of... some of them end on a bit of a bleak note, and they're basically left to just sort of carry on and make do of make do with what's in front of them. And there's another recurring thing in these films, Tony Richardson's especially, is these little reprieves, these little moments of consolation or solace that these characters have in these films. I mean, you look at Look Back in Anger first, you have Jimmy playing his trumpet in that little game that he and his wife play with as the squirrel and the bear. You go on to A Taste of Honey, and you see at the very beginning of the film when Joe and her mother are moving across town to their new flat, you see they're on a bus ride through the city center of Manchester and you see Joe is kind of marveling at all the buildings and the lights and there's something very innocent and childlike about it and then you see her again sort of have that same experience when the little when the child in, in front of her her house hands her that little sparkler at the end and then you see it in, in the loneliness of the long distance runner that long and that lovely sequence of Colin on his first unsupervised run through the trail and how much he enjoys those little moments of temporary freedom and interestingly enough, like I said before, the British New Wave and the French New Wave were basically, they ran concurrently, which is why a lot of people were just pretty quick to slap the title of British New Wave on this movement. And at the same time, in Italy, you had Michelangelo Antonioni making his films. You talk about Le Amice, La Ventura, La Notte, The Eclipse, Red Desert, many of which starred the great Monica Vitti, who passed away recently. May she rest in peace. Uh, you look at these Antonioni films, they were coming out at the same time as these kitchen sink dramas of, as the British New Wave. And on the one hand, you have these films that deal with the plight of people who have nothing, basically, in these gloomy, sort of post-industrial towns. And you look at these Antonioni films that came out around the same time, and you're looking at the plight of people of means, people who, you know, maybe on paper, at least to some, have everything, and who are living in a prospering and industrialized area in the north of Italy, often in Milan. So it's interesting seeing these two these two bodies of work come out at the same time and show these characters in similar crises, even though they come from completely different backgrounds. And it's interesting, the, the British New Wave basically ran from the late 50s and it kind of fizzled out by the mid-60s. So it was short-lived. And like I said, Richardson's, these are the only four films of the dozens that he made that kind of fit into this mold. We talked about this in our Carol Rice episode as well. He gave an interview in which he said that he believed that, for one thing, the films of the British New Wave may not hold up, they may not stand the test of time. And he thought that years after this movement had passed, that people would look back at these films that they had made and think they were kind of superficial. And in a way, he isn't wrong, because you look back at these films, and more in terms of the subject matter that they covered, I mean, we talked about how daring a film A Taste of Honey was for its time, I mean, the, the subjects that it covers aren't nearly as taboo today as they were then. 
that's just one example. And then, of course, you look at Saturday Night and Sunday Morning, which Richardson produced, and that dealt with, you know, extramarital affairs and abortion. And sure enough, the movement did fizzle out. However, it didn't spell the end of the directors that came out of it. Pretty much every director of note that came out of this movement basically went on to other things, and they continued to make great work. Carol Rice had another great career, wasn't nearly as prolific as Richardson, but made a ton of great films. We talked about Morgan, A Suitable Case for Treatment. He made Isadora with Vanessa Redgrave, who Tony Richardson was married to for a time. He made Sweet Dreams. The Gambler, which is one of my favorite films of the 70s. You had uh, Jack Clayton, who directed A Room at the Top in 1959 with Lawrence Harvey, who Richardson wasn't a big fan of. But it was a very successful film, and he later went on to direct The Pumpkin Eater and The Great Gatsby as well, the 1974 version. Brian Forbes, who directed The L-Shaped Room, he went on to have another great great career of his own as well. Lindsay Anderson, who directed This Sporting Life, he and Richardson went way back. He later went on to direct If, the 1968 film with Malcolm McDowell. J. Lee Thompson, who directed the film Tiger Bay in 1959 as part of the British New Wave, he went on to direct uh, the original Cape Fear, The Guns of the Navarone, and his career ended up taking a bit more of a sad turn later on, but still a very accomplished director. And John Schlesinger, arguably the most commercially successful of the bunch, he directed A Kind of Loving with Alan Bates in 1962, and later did Billy Liar with Tom Courtney in 63, and he went on to direct classics. I mean, he made Midnight Cowboy in 1969 with John Voight and Dustin Hoffman, a wonderful and heartbreaking film. And he later did Marathon Man and The Day of the Locust. So all, pretty much all these directors went on to, to wonderful and very respectable careers. And so after the, the British New Wave had peaked, if you will, uh, Richardson moved on to other things, but continued to make his own films through his Woodfall Production Company, and in 1963, he made Tom Jones, which is a period comedy, and it kind of takes the piss out of the old bourgeoisie and all that good stuff. But it was a difficult shoot for Tony Richardson. They had a hard time getting the money needed to make it the way they wanted, and like I said, money was constantly a problem in the early days of Richardson and his production company. And so Richardson wasn't really happy with the shoot. Hugh Griffith was difficult. He was a bit of a wild man. And Albert Finney was difficult as well. He did not like the part of Tom Jones. And between that and the financial issues, Richardson really just wasn't happy with the finished product. And it's an ambitious film, but it really isn't saying much. It's okay. I'm not a huge fan of it, despite the great cast. All that said, the film turned out to be a huge success at the box office and critically. I mean, it ended up getting nominated for 10 Oscars. John Osborne ended up winning for uh, his adapted screenplay. And Richardson himself ended up winning both Best Director and Best Picture, although he wasn't at the Oscars to accept them. And a bunch, they got a bunch of other nominations as well. Albert Finney got his first Oscar nomination for uh, Best Lead Actor. And three of the cast members, Edith Evans, Diane Salento, and Joyce Redman, all got nominated for Best Supporting Actress Oscars. And Susanna York is in it as well. Hugh Griffith got nominated for Best Supporting Actor. It's a wonderful cast, but... I kind of have to sign with Richardson on this one. I wasn't crazy about it. So after this, uh, Richardson remained prolific both as a filmmaker and on the stage. I mean, he continued to direct theater throughout the 60s and 70s, did a lot of Shakespeare adaptations, and uh, staged a lot of Bertolt Brecht plays as well. You find your work in the theater does influence you even now in making films? 
I don't think it does now. At least I hope it does now. I think the last film I made is, is, is totally sort of uninfluenced by anything that I've done in the theatre. I think definitely in the past that it has done, largely because up till now I've only made films that I've worked on first in the theatre. Now, this wasn't true about Taste of Honey because I wrote the film script and worked on the film before I directed the play. And I only directed the play in, in, in New York in order to make it possible to make the film. So, although though I had directed uh, in the theatre, I don't really consider it. It was in quite the same relation as to the other things I'd done, where I created them first in the theatre. But even so, I think it is very difficult to break the theatrical mould of the material. Once a thing is written as a play, however much you try, and I think this is certainly more successful than other places I've tried, uh, maybe because of the actual nature of the, the material and the uh, style of uh, Sheila's writing. Um, this, is, this is a more successful attempt, but I think, I think that, you know, the theatre is such a definite uh, convention and uh, form, and cinema is completely different, and I think once things have been poured into one mode, it's very difficult to melt them down again and re-pour them. And his film, if you, look at, if you look at the work he did basically from Tom Jones onwards up until his death, uh, it's basically all over the place. <laughs> I mean, he, he made The Loved One in 1965, which was basically supposed to be a spoof or a parody of the funeral business in the U.S. The film is basically as superficial as the industry it's supposed to be parodying. It's a great cast as well. I mean, Robert Morris is supposed to be the lead, but he's he basically becomes an ancillary character. And John Gielgud shows up, and uh, Anjanette Comer, and James Coburn, Rod Steiger, John Gielgud. I mean, it's a wonderful cast. And Liberace shows up in a small part, and he's great in it. But the film kind of shit the bed, to be honest, and it wasn't very funny. The film Richardson made after that, and one we're going to talk about again a little bit later, was Mademoiselle, which came out in 1966. And this, I think, is one of his best. It stars the great Jean Moreau. It's based on a story by Jean Genet. And she plays... It's basic, It's a mixed bag. It's a slow burn. So it's, like a, it's basically a, a simmering sort of suspense thriller. It's part character study. And it's excellent. It's kind of a prototype for the film The Piano Teacher with Isabelle Huppert, which came out in 2001. Jeanne Moreau basically plays a sort of sexually frustrated and furtive school teacher in rural France. And she is in all likelihood a virgin. And she is attracted to an Italian logger who lives in the village and whose son she teaches at the school. She has this primal desire for this logger. And it's basically a film about sexual repression and how these notions of virtue and purity can sort of be corrupted to the point where Jeanne Moreau's character ends up committing these terrible, terrible acts in response to them. Almost like she's punishing the logger for the desire that she feels for him, and it's an incredible film. A bit of a sleeper in, in the Richardson catalog, but like I said, Jeanne Moreau is incredible in it. Uh, Richardson also went on to, to direct a film adaptation of Hamlet, which he had done on the stage with Nicole Williamson as Hamlet. And there were some duds in there as well. He directed Ned Kelly, which was about the Australian bandit. It starred Mick Jagger, and I think neither of them liked it, and I don't think either of them ended up attending the premiere, from what I understand. That came out in 1970. Uh, he later directed A Delicate Balance as well in 1973, which is based on the Edward Albee play, and it's a great cast. Catherine Hepburn, Paul Schofield, Lee Remick, who he had worked with in, on Sanctuary, Kate Reed, the great Canadian actress, Joseph Cotton, Betsy Blair, who was the wife of Carol Rice. He later directed a film called Mahogany in 1975, which was supposed to be a vehicle for Diana Ross, and it was produced by Barry Gordy, who was the head of Motown. The two of them had had a, a relationship that uh, lasted for many years. But Barry Gordy ended up firing Richardson early on in the production and ended up directing it himself. 
Uh, and later on, Richardson began to work in TV as well, made a lot of films for television. He also ended up adapting the John Irving novel The Hotel New Hampshire in 1984 with a huge ensemble cast. And his last film was called Blue Sky, and it came out in 1994. The film itself was made in 1990, and Richardson ended up dying in 1991. The film wasn't released until three years later because the studio Orion Pictures had gone bust. They went bankrupt, and so the film was shelved as a result. And it didn't see the light of day until 1994 when the company was revived. And it's a story about a military family who was involved in uh, a cover-up involving the testing of nuclear bombs. And uh, Tommy Lee Jones and Jessica Lange are husband and wife. And Jessica Lange ended up winning Best Actress at the Oscars in 1994. But uh, Richardson wasn't alive to see it. Because in November of 1991, he had died of AIDS at the age of 63 in Los Angeles. He had been living there since the 70s. And I believe he was kind of tight-lipped on his illness and his diagnosis. Uh, I'm not sure when exactly he was diagnosed, but he had been battling AIDS, or had been HIV positive at least, for several years before his death, and it ended up bringing on a neurological infection that uh, ultimately landed him in the hospital, and he ended up dying. And he was survived by three daughters, two of which he had with the great Vanessa Redgrave. Uh, Vanessa Redgrave is one of the greatest actresses ever. She was in Isadora, Morgan, A Suitable Case for Treatment, Julia... She and her siblings, Corin and Lynn Redgrave, were both actors as well. Her parents were actors, Michael Redgrave and Rachel Kempson. And she and Tony Richardson were married in 1962 and were only together for a handful of years. She had been an understudy to Mary Ewer in a play that uh, Richardson had staged with the English Stage Company. Uh, and he had later seen Vanessa in a production of As You Like It, the Shakespeare play. And he was totally enamored with her upon seeing her in this play. And Richardson actually knew both Vanessa's parents, her mother, Rachel Kempson, was a member of his repertory company, the English Stage Company, and he, had, of course, had directed Michael Redgrave in The Loneliness of the Long Distance Runner, and they knew each other before then as well. And he ag pretty aggressively pursued a relationship with Vanessa, and, and they had a very passionate relationship, at least early on. And they were married in 1962. They were crazy about each other. The sort of honeymoon phase of their relationship was short-lived. Tony Richardson, for one thing, was bisexual. And not long after he and Vanessa were married, he began having affairs. In fact, he was repeatedly unfaithful. And after the success of Tom Jones, and he be after he became much more in demand as a director, that sort of pulled him further away from her. So between, between his workload and, you know, the demand there was for him as a director and his constant philandering, their marriage soon hit the rocks. And it was not unlike the marriage of Vanessa Redgrave's parents, Rachel Kempson and Michael Redgrave. Like Tony Richardson, Vanessa's father, Michael, was bisexual. And he had had many affairs that her mother, Rachel Kempson, was, was aware of. And she had put up with Michael Redgrave's infidelities for quite some time. Although she ended up later having affairs of her own. She ended up having one with Glenn Byam Shaw, who we mentioned earlier. Although it turns out that Byam Shaw himself was bisexual. And that he may have had an affair with Michael Redgrave as well. So the whole thing is totally incestuous. And apparently, from what I've, I read something about... Michael Redgrave actually spending a night with Edith Evans, the night Vanessa Redgrave was born. Edith Evans, as we said before, had worked with Tony Richardson, so it's this whole sort of... It's a fucking mess, really, and totally incestuous. And so there were definitely some parallels between the marriage of Vanessa's parents and her own marriage to Tony Richardson. And ultimately, I guess the final nail in the coffin was when he began making Mademoiselle. He was hell-bent on casting Jeanne Moreau in the lead part, and it was great casting, and she was incredible. But much like when... He saw Vanessa in As You Like It. He was totally smitten with Jeanne Moreau. He was obsessed with her, and he ended up leaving Vanessa Redgrave for Jeanne Moreau. And I believe their divorce was final in 1967. 
And by then, they had had two daughters together. Despite all that, he and Vanessa were active in each other's lives, basically up until Richardson's death. I mean, even after their divorce, immediately after Richardson had left Redgrave for Moreau, he cast both of them in a film called The Sailor from Gibraltar, which came out in 1967, and talk about art imitating life, he cast Redgrave as the partner of the lead character who was then abandoned for the other woman who was played by Jeanne Moreau, which I don't know how and why Vanessa Redgrave accepted that role and much less put up with all that bullshit, but in any case, and she and Richardson worked together again on his next film, The Charge of the Light Brigade, which came out in 1968, and of course the two of them had two daughters together, and they were both pretty consistent presences in each other's lives, and even shortly before Richardson's death, the two of them had planned on working in the theater together, so a very complicated and messy relationship, it seems. And their two daughters both became accomplished and respected actresses themselves. Uh, their first daughter, Natasha Richardson, played Patty Hearst in the Paul Schrader film, and if you're a 90s baby like I am, you know her from the film Parent Trap. But unfortunately, she died tragically in a skiing accident in 2009. She was only 45 years old, and she and Liam Neeson had been husband and wife. They had been together for many years in a very just sad and unexpected death. And... Richardson's second daughter with Redgrave was Jolie Richardson, who did a lot of great work on television. She was in the series Nip Tuck, and she was also in The Tudors. And Richardson later had another daughter named Catherine, who was born in 1973 from a relationship with a woman named Griselda Grimond, or Grimond, I suppose. She had worked for a, an old business associate of his named Oscar Lewinstein, and so Richardson's three daughters survived him. And before I leave you, here's, a, here's another thing I found in my research that I found interesting, and I didn't really know where to fit it in, so I, I just decided to leave it for the end. In 1966, Richardson reportedly financed the escape from prison of a British double agent. So George Blake was a member of, NI, of MI6, which is basically the British Secret Intelligence Service. So George Blake had basically been betraying British secrets to the Soviets, and he did it for many years. And a defector... To the British side ultimately revealed to them that they had a mole in their organization. Blake was suspected, he was called back from assignment in Lebanon, he was accused, tried, and ultimately sentenced to 42 years in prison for espionage, and he was sentenced in 1961. So five years after that, in 1966, with the help of two convicts, he escaped from the prison, was smuggled to East Berlin, and then to Russia proper, and the Soviets ended up giving him a new identity, they gave him a pension, they gave him a country house, a car, and the Order of Lenin, which was basically the, the highest civilian order of the USSR at that time. And apparently, Tony Richardson was one of, I don't know if he was the only backer, but he certainly financed the breakout of George Blake and his escape, which I was kind of baffled to read about. But yeah, I don't really know what else to say about that. <laughs> um, it was a bit of an outlier in uh, in my research and what I was able to find out about Tony Richardson's life. And like I said, I, I really didn't know where I could fit it in into the episode without sort of deviating completely from his life and work. And so I just decided to leave it for the end. And with that said, I think that's where I'll leave it. That's all I got for Tony Richardson. And I hope you enjoyed. I hope you get to watch. I hope you see these kitchen sink dramas and all the other films of the British New Wave. Most of them, I think, still hold up to this day. Even though a lot of the subject matter may not be as sensitive as it was then, uh, I do think they're worth revisiting. They are wonderful, raw, and unvarnished portrayals of working-class life. There are some wonderful performances. I especially love Richard Burton as Jimmy in, uh, in Look Back in Anger, and Laurence Olivier in The Entertainer. Uh, but they're all great, all four of those Richardson films. Uh, and I highly encourage you to watch them. And thank you for tuning in. Thank you again for listening. 
thank you for your continued support. And I also want to give a shout-out to my friend Laurent Morin, who wrote and composed and performed our theme music. I uh, have neglected to give him his shout-out of late. So another warm thank you to him. And like I said, you can find us on the Spotify, the Apple Podcasts, or iTunes, Google Podcasts, and Podbean as well. Like, subscribe, leave comments if you'd like. Follow us on the Instagram at Closed Set Podcast. That's Closed Set Podcast for updates on new episodes, recommended viewing, uh, little teasers on uh, what's coming up on the show. And we've got some good stuff lined up. We're going to be covering Joseph H. Lewis soon and the great Elaine May, which I'm very much looking forward to. She's one of my favorites. So follow us on the Instagram to, to stay up to date. You can email us as well at closesetpod at gmail.com with any comments, questions, recommendations, criticisms, whatever you got, you know what to do. And with that said, until next time, take care of yourselves. Bye-bye. Now, the, the words absolutely are the, the primary creative unit in the theatre, and there's nothing else you know, and a bad performance of a marvellous play can still be more satisfying than the most expert and skillful production of a bad play. On the other hand, in the cinema, the director is, is the only artist. I agree that there are too many directors lacking personality, and this is the whole problem with making films, and I don't think we've even begun to achieve it in England. I certainly don't think I have. But to put, to express oneself as freely in film, as a, a, a painter does when he's painting, as a novelist does when he's writing, as a dramatist does when he's writing, this is the, the whole problem. I mean, film should be the expression of one man, one man's vision of life and one man's attitude towards it. And because of all the sort of um, the apparatus, the uh, production problems, the complications of making films, this is not as easy in our, as in other mediums. But we, and you know, everything fights you against doing this. At the same time, this is the only thing to achieve, and all the really good films that have ever been made are like that. I mean, that's why I totally reject the, uh, the way that films are usually made commercially, the way that films are made in Hollywood. And all, all the, the great films have been the expression of one man.